0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, I was noticing about the Green family by Nancy Firm, who's the person who's coordinating that. I was really, uh, started thinking about how many families, individual people that uh, we end up touching, um, influencing positively their life in some key moments. I was thinking about all of those Helping Hands programs and all of the Friends in Action programs and all of the things that we do for international partners and how many of us I mean literally um, not only us but a circle of people around us uh, uh, support all of these activities. I I find like people really want um, to help and, and find a way to help uh, and, and that when you think about the ethical society and uh, who knows about us, we're, we're really better known um, for our uh, good works than we are for um, our philosophy, for our identity. Um, I uh, was reminded, you know, the very first place uh, as a community, Elemento, that we worked with in um, El Salvador, we built a school. And, uh, and, and uh, Donna literally uh, uh, funded the, all the furnishings of the school and we trained the teachers. Um, and... Um, Uh, The first time we went there, we gave these little uh, um, Woolly Wig things, or like sticks with a a blade on it, and you go like that, and they go up, and we gave them to the kids. And I remember going back there, and um, uh, 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 the classic little old lady, although she probably was younger than me, um, came up to me, and she started pointing and jabbering, and I, at that point, could speak virtually no Spanish, and I kept trying to say, You know, noble Espanol, noble Espanol, and she started pointing at me, and she said, Washington Ethical Society! (laughs) Reading about uh, the Green family um, got me thinking about Hurricane Katrina and and what it reveals about our national culture and how much our national culture um, doesn't have the mood and the attitude that uh, seems to be here among uh, people in our community and and. What it means, I think, about the national character are the obvious things. The first thing, of course, was the incredible rush of solidarity and caring and the great generosity for strangers in trouble. And with it, the condemnation of the government for not being there to help. But the second thing, image, I think it came from that was, was the, the, the rich white people loading up in SUVs, driving to safety with credit cards, not really thinking about the fate of the citizens that didn't have the cards and didn't have the credit cards and got trapped by the flood. Um, and, and then there was the image of, um, that exposed the institutionalized uh, racism that we can see in virtually all the cities in the United States. Um, people of color caught up in a vicious cycle of poverty without sufficient ladders of opportunities. Um, And and so therefore, in harm's way, every day, in lots of ways. Now, all of these images could motivate us to really change America for the better. But actually, they have not, have they? I mean, it's all kind of faded away. Um, Another metaphor kind of quelled the public uh, empathy. Uh, Katrina showed people who could not take care of themselves who turned on each other, who became looters and lawless. Um, they couldn't even get the buses rolling. You know, This is not what would happen to us. It wouldn't happen in our neighborhood. We wouldn't react that way. So it must be their fault. Defining people as other and not us stops caring. Suddenly, blaming the victim cancels our responsibility. And that image... Floated around as well. I was on a TV program a month or so ago, and the first question they asked me is, What do you think of the looters? That was the first question that they wanted to know about. You know, I believe what the world needs right now is um, a revival, a religious revival, aimed specifically to save our national soul and our souls. I don't mean a religion that, of course, is anti-science or anti-evolution or anti-government or pro-authoritarian or isolationist, I don't mean um, uh, exploiting and sacrificing the system just to win. And not the powerful against the powerless. Not, not reversal of social and economic progress, not exploiting uh, cheap labor, not declining wages and jobs, uh, not diminishing social capital, not people uh, above the law, not illegal wire traps, not state-sponsored torture, not state-sponsored terrorism, not preemptive war of self-interest, not isolation from the world, and not destruction of the earth for short-term gain. Now, those of you who are with me regularly know... <laughs> That I've been putting out, you know, kind of month after month, um, a, a, a case for urgency, you know. Uh, wake up. We're not in Kansas anymore. Or to update that, we're in Kansas. <laughs> what, what, I get, what I get in response is, yes, events call for urgency. I get agreement. What I don't get is urgency, you know, except for a few. Why is that? I think the answer is that there is not sufficient personal inspiration for action. And there isn't sufficient leadership that inspires us to channel our hopes into some action. We and our leaders lack the inspiration to motivate action. Well, of course, not, we're not feeling the pain as people did during the depression, when they just took to the streets and demanded a New Deal, and we're not feeling the pain as we did when we watched the civil rights movement and what was happening on TV, and we're not feeling the pain that we did in the Vietnam War when we saw all those images, motivated us to action. When, when churches took the lead in all of these movements, what I believe we need today is a religious revival. Right now, the extremists, political, religious, are at war with each other. And we, along with the majority of people, are the collateral damage. The religious middle are people, the religious middle are people also who have an education in science and reasoning. And in the privacy of their own being, they no longer believe in a man-god intervening on their behalf. As fervently as they once did. But they don't have an alternative. So mainland religion tends to go through the motions of religion, enjoying the aesthetics, the music, the poetry, the rituals, the potluck suppers, (laughs) the, the community of it. The revival of the middle requires a rebirth of the concept of God that integrates old religion and new science and creating some kind of faith that you can wholeheartedly believe in because it's real to you. What we need is a new kind of religion, a, a reconception of what's meant by God. Now, I, I realize that many of you here have decided, decided not to believe in God. The God of your childhood seemed rather unbelievable and unreal, a cruel delusion perhaps, leading to hypocrisy. Um, meant empty rituals, and and requiring some self-delusion. Yet, whatever rejection of God that you did, it was based on the God you knew and the religion you knew. It was based on a certain poetic image that was presented to you. Well, as adults, free of religious bondage, let's reconsider, not what we don't believe, but what we do believe. And my thesis is, that the phenomena of God is more than a poetic image. The poetic imagery of God was created to describe a real and recurrent human experience. Generation after generation people had an experience that they needed to communicate. It came from virtually every century and every culture. They were trying to describe something and they had to use the language of whatever metaphors they had. And our ancestors did not read. They didn't have training in logic or reason. They didn't have the language of science. But they knew their experience. And they created poetic images, stories, to convey the meaning. Now, if you argue that a man-god in the sky, whose laws are mightier than any human law or ruler, is not credible, you are left with the question, what was the phenomena that religious people were trying to capture, in all of these centuries and cultures, what were they trying to capture with these metaphors? What does the God concept intend to represent? And and what language do you use for the meaning that those God stories, at their best, were attempting to communicate? How do you talk about it? If we have no language for it, we can't talk about it at all. Now, my thesis is, that the phenomena called God represents our faith in the natural power within the human spirit that makes us care about each other just as we care about ourselves. And it identifies that innate capacity in our human nature, our natural urge to do good, a yearning to be part of a world that promotes the well-being of all. The Ubuntu idea that my self-esteem depends on your welfare. Your welfare is good, my self-esteem. How are you? If you are well, I am well. Our challenge is to strengthen our personal experience, our actual experience of good, so that we feel sufficiently inspired by it, so we can bear witness to it, so we can bring it to bear in relationships and moments that we're in, so, so we can elicit it out of other people, so that we can create a society based on that experience. Now, today, my aim is to literally strengthen you in your faith in the power of goodness within you. Not with anecdotal stories that will move your feelings, but with scientific research aimed at convincing your literal reasoning brain that the phenomena is real. I wanna ground it in science so you feel very certain that the people who have, who have poetically called God had something that can inspire you as well, so that you can practice finding it, tuning into it. Now, you, you may choose to call this good, or you can call it God. You can call it the Holy Spirit, or the higher self, or you can call it love. You can call it moral sensitivity. You can call it, as Kant did, the urge to do good, or as Emerson did, the voice of God within. You could call it the human capacity for doing the right thing. You could call it social intelligence. Whatever you want to call it, whatever's comfortable in your language, I want to emphasize it's reality, it's centrality to our life. And and, and there's growing scientific foundation for believing that humans are hardwired for the ethical messages of Judaism, for the love messages of Jesus, and to the very core of ethical values that are shared by all the world religions, hardwired for that. The phenomena of a voice speaking within us or of a capacity for goodness that they're awaiting cultivation, is in fact being, support, being researched by something called positive psychology, and they have results. Now, what, 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 what they call the phenomena is empathy. The religious term would be our God consciousness, our awareness of everyone as God's children. You know? that, that concept of empathy is defined as the ability... To know the feelings, perspective, and goals of another person and care enough to help. The ability to know the feelings, perspective, and goals of another person and to care enough to help. That quality in us, that capacity in us. Now the research makes three points. First one, empathy. Our capacity to do good is hardwired dimension in our human nature. Second, that empathy must be turned on and it can be turned off. And third, today empathy is being turned off rather than on by fundamentalists and political leaders and the media. Let me give a sampling of the literature, and then we'll get to the turned on, turned off part. And this all comes from uh, a journal called The Greater Good. Uh, Some of you may subscribe to it. It comes from the University of California at Berkeley. It's it's wonderful. Uh, Dr. Franz DeWall is a leading primatologist and author. He wrote The Evolution of Empathy. He says our our self-interest requires that we be able to read people so that we can understand the situations we're in. In fact, in fact he said, if you, if you find a person not very good at reading people, you start worrying, they may be a little dangerous, they may be mentally ill. You know, we pick that up. Uh, the golden rule, common to all the religions, would not work without the capacity to mentally trade places with another person. Now, Dr. DeWall cites two major reasons for empathy to evolve. The first one is that human offspring benefit from a very long childhood where they can't communicate, and they survive only if the caretakers have the ability to understand what they need. Females who respond to their offspring's needs out for reproduce those who do not. Now, the second reason that cooperation is our species' greatest is that our cooperation is our species' greatest Uh, survival advantage. I mean, we're not bigger, stronger, faster, we don't reproduce more, but we cooperate like nobody else. That cooperation requires being in tune with the emotions and the goals of other people. Now, the hardwiring of empathy is also a genetic trait, which is reported in the American Journal of Psychiatry. For example, the rhesus, rhesus monkeys refuse to pull a chain to get food because they could see that by so doing it, it was giving an electric shock to another monkey. And one did not pull the chain for 12 days, literally starving rather than causing harm. Research, both in numerous pieces of research, but I'll mention one right here that has to do with human beings, by Tanya Singer and her colleagues, found uh, similar results in humans. And they found out that the part of the brain that their volunteers activated when they were given shocks... When they were given shocks, certain part of their brain like, "Oh, I don't like this." But when they were watching a loved one being shocked, the same part of their brain became activated. I don't like this. Same part of their brain. Okay. Dr. DeWall concludes with a warning. He said, "Human beings are hardwired to experience empathy because it's necessary for us to build our cooperative societies." But empathy can be turned off. And we need to learn how to turn it on. Now, there, there's some good reasons to be able to turn it off, he points out. Um, uh, anyone in a bad mood would definitely ruin your day every day. I'd have to meet one of them if we were always that open. And, and, and you'd have trouble feeding yourself. Uh, you know, we once raised rabbits, and it was really hard for me to kill the rabbit, blah, blah, blah. blah. But every time we finally served the rabbit, no matter how chicken like it was presented to me, I would get this. <laughs> nausea, and I couldn't eat. And I kept thinking, this is ridiculous, you know. But the next time the rabbit was, I couldn't eat it. Why, this is ridiculous. What part of me, some part of me would not let me eat this thing. So we stopped raising rabbits. <laughs> but if empathy can't be turned on, you can't eat. Turning empathy off also protects you from danger. J- just as you're comfortable with people like you, because you get them, you know, you also... Suspicious of people that you don't get, people who have a different culture from you, outsiders, strangers. Now, one, once a person is not one of us, we become objectify them. I mean, if we're not reading in their humanity, they just become a, 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 an object. You know, a, 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 they're reds or gooks or terrorists or liberals or rednecks or atheists or baby killers or fundamentalists. Once we make them not people, our empathy's off. Enemies, by definition, enemies, are justifiable to hate. I mean, we can justify hating enemies. That's what, that's what it means. That's what the word's about. Goals like universal human rights and all men created equal and alienable rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's not possible unless every human being is part of an us. Adler wrote that our challenge uh, to end evil is to personalize the depersonalized. So that's what it comes all down to, personalizing the depersonalized. Dr. DeWall concludes that there's hope uh, for the world, a cooperative world, because empathy overrides hatred, if you can turn it on. Um, he gives this example. Uh, In in 2004, the Israeli Minister of Justice caused a very big political uproar for sympathizing with the enemy because Yosef Lapid questioned the army's plan to demolish thousands of Palestinian homes in a zone along the Egyptian border. Why did he do that? He said, I was watching the evening news when I saw a picture on TV of an old woman on all fours in the ruins of her home. And I thought, What if she were my grandmother? Lapid's grandmother was a Holocaust victim. Uh, Another example is that when Marcos, remember Marcos was being deposed as the president of the Philippines? It was because of a public outcry. People went to the streets. They gathered in great crowds to protest. And the army took up a position to stop them. And it looked like bloodshed was certain. Then a man began shouting into a bullhorn. He shouted for the captain in charge. What the captain in charge of the army. And finally he said, Jose, this is your uncle Antonio. Listen to me. I'm here in the crowd. Your mother, your sisters are here with me. Your grandmother's here. Your cousins are here. Our neighbors are here. Jose, are you going to kill us? What would your father say, Jose. This is your Uncle Antonio. I'm asking you, don't embarrass the family. (laughs) Stop aiming your guns at us. The captain ordered his troops to stand down. The confrontation ended without violence, and Marcos resigned. When the depersonalized crowd becomes personalized, empathy overrides hatred. But it's hard to turn it on. How is it turned on? How is it turned off? Researcher Darlene Francis, experimenting with mice, shows that empathy turns on empathy. Some mothers calmly, responsibly nurture, groom, and feed their young. Other mothers nervously fret, but are less responsive to their offspring's needs. The empathetic mothers raise mice who became similarly responsive mothers. And the unempathetic mothers raised unresponsive mothers. Well, researchers then switched the newborns at birth. So the common nervous mothers were raising each other's genes. The nervous mothers again raised more stress-sensitive offspring, who as adults were easily startled, too fearful to explore the middle of the cage, and perform less well on cognitive tests. The conclusion, empathetic responses turn on your empathetic abilities. Now, today, very few people are championing the caring side or even the caring God as a priority compared to being tough or psych- sucking it up or going it alone or uh, or righteous God. Now, the lack of priority is very evident in the trends over the last few decades in our society where empathetic care is actually decreasing. You know, as, as working parents... We give our children less and less attention. How can we? And and as exhausted parents, we can be less responsive. Families are living very far apart compared to every other time in history. Neighbors are usually strangers rather than caring adults. And communities are often dangerous. Robert Putnam, um, the the bestseller uh, Bowling Alone, remember that one a couple years ago? He documents that people socialize far less now in churches and civic groups and bowling teams. And he shows that as social connections, as our per- personal relationships with people diminish, social and economic inequality also increases. A lack of socialization, knowing lots of people personally, makes us more and more depersonalized. And we lose the ability to empathize, because that's what turns it on. See if you identify with this uh, following example. It's from psychologists um, Philip Cohen, Carolyn Cohen, and Nera Met. Um, uh, they're writing, again, in The Greater Good, and they're writing about personal relationships. See if, see if this is at all sounds familiar to you. Husband Rick gets home from work. He's already home. He's been home 30 minutes, in fact, and he is slumped on the couch. Uh, and at that moment, uh, his wife, Anna, uh, enters the living room. Um, how come you didn't put your things away when you came home I'll do it in a minute it's been a whole bunch of minutes I've, I, I have your clothes and papers dumped on the dining room table the kids are toys are in the kitchen I trip over everything trying to make dinner give me a break I had a horrible day exhausting drive home I'm fried don't ask about my day after I got home your mother called she kept me on the phone for an hour, yelling about some cousin of yours who insulted her. I suppose you were at your usual sweet patient self trying to calm her down. No answer. It doesn't deserve an answer. Listen, Rick says. Listen, I've had it with you, Anna. You're out of control. You're always on me. Maybe you need a more patient wife, she responds. Maybe you need a more patient wife, she responds leaving the room he says maybe i do your diagnosis better communication skills yeah 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 well these psychologists propose that it's more than that it's a fundamental failure of empathy the they define it as their their inability to imagine what their partner is feeling and thinking Their studies show that there's a correlation between people who can state, during a disagreement, the other's feelings and thoughts, and their general satisfaction with their relationships. And interestingly, note that both parties in a relationship has to be able to do it for it to work. But it works. There needs to be some kind of internal intervention. When we're faced with personal conflict, something that calls on our higher self at this moment, or something that we decide. I'm going to pray on it, or you can ask for your God voice. What should I do now? I mean, if I was really the goodest person on the planet, what would I do now? I may not choose to do it, but it would be good to know what that would be. Or it could be just a habit of pausing and trying to tune into your empathetic power to figure out if I were her, what would I be thinking, feeling now? Right? Whatever you want to call it is not important. There needs to be though some conceptual technique that you have for yourself that you use to turn on your empathetic imagination when you need it. Now, Rick could have responded empathetically to Anna's frustration about the conversation with the mother. He could have said, you know, well, thanks for settling down. I'm sure spending an hour with her <clears throat> was a big sacrifice. Appreciate you do it. Um, or Anna could have left his sarcasm just pass. I mean, he had said he was fried. He's not going to be at his empathetic best. Most upsets come when you're tired and hungry or hungry. Let it pass. Or or Rick could have moved to pick things up. Couldn't have put them there in the first place, knowing that it would affect her. Anna could have responded to Rick's bad day. Rick could have been grateful that Anna was cooking. Having thoroughly not gotten each other, though, their empathy was off. And they quickly escalated to killing the relationship. We're not really right for each other. What kills relationship is not things on the table. It's not making dinner without uh, help or appreciation. It's not complaining. It's not blaming. It's not sarcasm. What we need from each other is that empathy, the sense, the experience that a person who loves me gets me. He gets, someone else has a sense of what it's like to be me right now. That's a very satisfying experience. We want it. Empathetic responses transcend that sense of isolation. If we can't do that for each other, then we can't get each other. The relationship feels dead. It, feels it doesn't exist, actually, because the relationship is that ability. And when it doesn't exist, why not kill it? Let it go. What turns off empathy is chronic depression and anxiety. Usually that results from a family history of unempathetic parents who are not good caretakers, who generated in the family atmosphere stress, anxiety, and conflict. So that you carry with you that. Or the second thing is just high levels of stress. Um, you're You're just too exhausted to get up to empathetic power and and that could come that within the family there could be a lot of stress division of labor poor decision-making poor conflict resolution disorganization a child in difficulty a sick relative or leafy roof bulls overdue whatever illness whatever stresses you or it could be outside you're stressed with your job or the world but that keeps us from being empathetic now my point here is that our personal relationships need this mental tool a habit an intervention that says, okay, turn on the empathy now. I'm going down a track of being turned off here. This person is becoming a blank slate, an other, and I would like to cream this other. No sense of the other from the inside. This is the moment where I need to read that person, get them from the inside, and react appropriately to that. Now, I want to now switch our attention to the big world out there. Because the other thing that affects our empathy being on or off is our public leaders and and the events. Because public leaders and the events around us are either connecting us to our higher self or to our capacity for good or to our God voice or our empathy, whatever you want to call it. It's connecting us to that or squeezing it out. Arlie Hochschild, a professor of sociology at Berkeley, presents the case that empathy is being turned off today in American life. She calls it the empathy squeeze. And to illustrate uh, why the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting left behind while most people don't protest, she offers a metaphor. She calls the chauffeur's dilemma. A chauffeur drives a limousine through the streets of New York with a millionaire in the back seat. And the millionaire sees a homeless woman and her two children huddled in a cold sharing a loaf of bread. He orders the chauffeur to stop. The chauffeur gets out, opens the passenger door for the millionaire, who walks over to the woman, snatches the loaf of bread, and returns to the car. Now, the chauffeur, who's known hard times himself, feels qualms about what his employer has done, but he closes the door, returns to his front seat, and drives away, saying nothing. Now, in real life, we are in the role of the chauffeur, bewildered, dismayed, but unable to respond to what's happening. Now, you might think this story is extreme, but let's consider some of the facts. Our government has bestowed the greatest gift uh, in history to the rich in tax cuts, budget cuts, and government contracts, often no bid. Like the chauffeur, nobody is stepping up, stepping forward to prevent that. Meanwhile, high gas prices harm the poorest people who can't afford the gas while American oil companies gained the highest profit of any business in all of history. The long-term unemployment has risen since the 2000 election, but long-term unemployment insurance uh, benefits have been cut. Eight of the cities is down 15%, and that's to pay things like libraries, after-school programs, health clinics. According to the Center for Budget and uh, Policy Priorities, the loss of federal funds from the 2006 tax cut, Bush's tax cut, will mean $925 million less for Head Start in education. Head Start is going to serve 100,000 fewer people. By 210, the elementary and secondary education will be cut by $4.6 billion, 12%. 670K, uh, thousand, 670,000 fewer women and children are going to be served by the Women's Infants and Children's Supplemental Nutrition Program. 370,000 fewer low-income families, elderly people, people with disabilities, are going to receive rental assistance. In 2006 alone, the Bush budget would cut housing and community development aid by 30%. Meanwhile, the 2001 tax cut has given to every millionaire an average of $93,500, and to every middle-income person, $217. By 2010, the bottom 20% with an average income of $12,200 will receive 2% of the benefits. Of the largest American corporations, 82 paid no taxes, income taxes whatsoever. That includes General Motors, El Paso Energy, a lot of ones we'd recognize because they're the largest ones. Uh, they, did, they did not pay taxes during at least one or more years since 2000. Now, the story of the millionaire is camouflaged as tax relief that gives to the richest and the budget reform that takes from the poorest. The millionaire taking the bread is graphic But not an exaggeration. Why doesn't the chauffeur do something? Why do Americans approve tax cuts even though they diminish their social and infrastructure and benefits? Answer, religious and public leaders are turning empathy off rather than on. Uh, I want to consider some ways, five to be exact, in which our higher self or our capacity for empathetic action is being squeezed out systematically. The first one, President Bush has made himself a wartime president. The effect has been that both the left and the right, politicians, media, religious leaders, you and me, focus mostly on war issues. You know, the incorrect or deceitful reasons for the war the poor conduct of the war, the justification for the war, the injustice of the war, the cost and losses of the war. Criticism is unpatriotic, yes or no. Is it effective against terrorism? When should our troops return home? What power should a war president have? Each war issue is stressful. It grabs our attention, grabs public attention, away from all other issues. This focus on war requires turning off empathy. Empathy the way to wage a war, to support a war, you've got to turn off your empathy towards the enemy. Killing people requires depersonalizing them. It's not a normal human natural act to kill somebody. You've got to depersonalize them for that. Even if you oppose the war, you have to turn off your empathy. Because if you really care about it, watching and personalizing the death and dismemberment and destruction every single day in Iraq is too painful. It's, it's too emotionally paralyzing to pay attention on the person-to-person level. Therefore, the war turns off our empathy. It, it makes it harder for the chauffeur to read and respond to the impact of other issues. Okay, we have a president and a vice president who have gone into cities to say to people, a nuclear bomb could be smuggled into your city. We once had a president who said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Big difference, right? Increasing fear and the pain of war shuts down our ability to feel empathy. Okay, a second way that our president shuts off entity is by redefining the role of government. Now most Americans once believed that government was good. It was on their side. It was building social infrastructure. It was roads, schools, safety net in trouble times, helping people get ahead. Most people believe that we should be a middle class society, without much of an upper class and not much of a lower class and government should foster this ideal. Most Christians thought that the progressive tax on the rich and helping the poor was a Christian ideal. A 2003 Roper poll asked, do you think the Bush tax tax, uh, relief mainly benefits the rich? Now, of those who agreed that tax cuts favored the rich, 56 supported it anyway. And among those earning less than $30,000, almost half still supported the tax cuts. Why? Why? Because government is no longer us. It's a they. The bureaucrats inside the beltway you know, they're bad, they're wasteful, they're a burden on your back, they're an enemy to be feared and defeated. They think they can spend your money better than you. We're going to starve that beast that devours your wages. So the chauffeur decides, why not save a dollar, even if the rich get more? At least I'll be killing the beast. A third way that empathy is being turned off is the presidents can't help you government or shouldn't help you government. As government does less, problems get larger as people worry about their welfare their own stress makes them less able to empathize with other people you Now, many families feel a squeeze between hope and prospects um, hope comes from the american belief in progress upward mobility they identify upward with people wealthier than i am more, more powerful more successful more fortunate now that's who i want to identify with it's uplifting The chauffeur does not want to identify with the homeless lady because as long as he has a job, he has a chance to make it to the top or the back of the limousine. He has hope. But meanwhile, his prospects are disappearing. Declining industrial sector that paid high wages, slow uh, growth of new jobs, especially good ones. And declining earning power and declining job security, hoping for one thing and then bracing for the other creates a lot of personal anxiety that shuts down empathy. You know, this has not always been the social climate for Americans. You know, real earnings rose every single decade for 150 years until 1970. That's including the Depression decade. However tough the job that you had, however long your hours, however bad your boss, the rising paycheck inspired hope for a better future for yourself, family. But after 1970, real wages stopped rising. Wives took paid jobs. Hours worked increased 19% from 73 to 96. Involuntary uh, job loss, debt, and bankruptcy has risen steadily since 1970. Before 1970, the American social class structure had a top like an orange. Very few at the top, most people in the middle. Now it's beginning to look like an hourglass. Jobs in the middle are fewer and fewer. This means the chauffeur is more likely to fall to the bottom than rise to the top. So when you fear you're not getting ahead or being downsized or not able to find a good job, a uh, paying job, or that the whole culture is not a rising tide, you feel like you've got to handle your own problems before you handle someone else's. I mean, charity begins at home, becomes the mood. These fears turn off your empathy. People draw in to their own families. They lessen their involvement in communities and outsiders. They stop the social contact that gives them empathy. The borders that define us and them become narrower. And then we're less able to bond with other citizens to pursue our common good. Now, a fourth way empathy is turned off is by redefining what it means to be a good person. You know, the chauffeur's empathy leaves him not feeling very good about himself by just driving on. That doesn't feel good. So the politicians and the religious leaders help by redefining good as a matter of judging rather than caring. You are a good and moral person if you disapprove of abortion and gay marriage and stem cell research and evolution in the schools and government spending. You believe those things, you're a good person. People who don't are a bad person. The moral cover for giving less is to privatize social welfare. Churches should do it. Personal charities should do it. Uh, Which means... That people get a sense that they're feeling like they're doing something. I feel good about what I'm contributing. I'm buying one of those little wristbands. But they're never giving enough to compensate what the government is cutting back. A fifth way empathy is being turned off. If you cannot count on economic progress, you know, if you can't count your part of some upward mobile thing, you can get hope at church. A church that promises that you are going to progress to heaven. You are going to go to everlasting joy while everyone else is going to suffer. Here, you are going to be on top. Look at the social chaos in the world. Look at the storms. Look at the troubles in the world. Your ascent to the top is near. Hmm. Foolish. In a recent Gallup poll, 36% believe the world is coming to an end. 36%. You know, that's not a small little lunatic fringe. It's a large, big lunatic French. <laughs> the Christian novel series, get this, Christian novel series, bestseller, Left Behind, has sold 62 million copies. As life at home is getting more difficult, our president rechannels hope for a better life away from government, redirects fear and anger toward a foreign enemy. And champions a religious message that shuts down rather than turns on empathetic caring. What's going to turn on the chauffeur's empathy, allowing him to recognize he has the power to act, to stop the car, to to tax the millionaire, to provide job training, education, housing, health care for everybody? We can do this. How are we going to do it? We need to turn on our empathy. We need to preach it. And we need to know how to be it to tune into our empathetic uh, abilities and powers at the moment of stress and difficulties you know Felix Adler as I do d- did not believe in a man God in the sky but he appreciated it as a metaphor that conveyed ethical values a metaphor that if you talk to it 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 could give you advice and who cares what it is it is my better self it is my wisest self who cares but to ask oneself the question what would my god say what would be the ideal best goodest fairest kindest thing to do if i could do it to ask that question is really important adler realized the religious problem is that not everybody interprets the word of god as ethically as moses or as lovingly as jesus or as universally as buddha what the world needs is a new agreement about the nature of God. You know, Adler's titles were not uh, End of Religion or Death of God. His titles were Changing Concepts of God, Reconception of the Spiritual Ideal. He was a reconstructionist. He, the religions of the world have a common core of ethical values. And these values are the ones that create the conditions in which humans thrive. Respect, truth, love, justice, responsibility, forgiveness. Religions share the belief that the divine dwells within each person. Whether you want to call that the God within, the Holy Spirit, the human worth, the capacity for good in the human spirit, whatever you want to call it, something good is there. The competing idea has always been selfishness, as if that were the reality of human nature. And and materialism, as if greed was a source of happiness. Now, we, we have evidence that feeling oneness with other people, caring about other people as we do ourselves, is hardwired into our human nature. But what we need to do is to insist that good and God are one, that the true God is the one that expects us to hold other people sacred in all dimensions of life, personal and public. When, when people talk of God, we should be not withdrawing as non-believers. We should propose that God is the power and the human spirit that makes us care about our neighbor as ourselves. That that God is the power in the human spirit that yearns to be part of a world that promotes the well-being of one and and all. And that so-called God consciousness, if you will, that ability to know the feelings, you know, to be omnipotent and uh, um, uh, um, um, omniscient in the sense of knowing the feelings and the perspective and the goals of another person, trying to perceive that and care about that, that consciousness is what we need to strengthen. We need to express our faith Um, in in mental tools that are going to intervene in our lives when we're in stress so that people will see that in stress we know how to see people from the inside and respond in a helpful way. Now, to express our faith we're going to have to personalize the depersonalize and that means in every discussion we and you find it i mean the way people talk and gossip and characterize each other i mean it's happening all the time and every single time you allow someone to depersonalize somebody else in your presence you're turning off empathy yours and theirs we need to inspire a sense that the true path to happiness is from connection to someone Beyond yourself connection to something greater than ourselves one for all all for one is the secret of the American dream now here at the other society we're about to launch something um, an initiative that we call opening doors because it's going to coincide with the expansion of our building and our opening those doors it's about us going public it's bringing who we are out to the world and to do that each and every one of us has to be real clear about what is it that I am bringing out into the world to represent what the ethical side is about I just want to give you some good news for closing words here Um, uh, we're entering the Chinese year of the dog and the dog year is one that brings social awareness and an investment in society's less powerful people it's the inclination toward greed is replaced by a spirit of generosity the dog has a very keen sense of right and wrong So, let us make it a dog year. If not us, who? You know? Let's go dog.